0: This is Cocktails Distilled, a podcast that takes your favorite spirits and liqueurs from the still to the cocktail glass. In each episode, we talk to distillers and creators about particular expressions that their brand have released, what they are, why they were created, and in what cocktails they can be used. Are you ready to understand what's in your glass, or perhaps should be? Welcome to Cocktails Distilled. Welcome back to Cocktails Distilled. Today we are looking at the very niche, yet thriving world of heritage grain whiskey. Whilst heritage grain may sound highbrow, yet for distillers like Al Laws, who started Laws Whiskey House in Colorado more than a decade ago, heritage is all about flavour and giving the liquid the respect to be done right. As Laws prepares to start the year with a series of new releases, we talked to him about grains, small-scale distilling, and the faith required in every step of the whiskey making process. Thank you for joining us, Al. Thanks for having me. Now, there's quite a movement towards heritage grains. What impact do you think this is having on the whiskey industry?
1: Well, I think it's, it's like anything else. As you look at your industry and as as you look at your products and you're like, well, how do you make them better? How do you make them richer? What were they originally? There's a lot of kind of nostalgia in whiskey for sure. And it's kind of like, well, what was it back when they started all this 100 years ago? For us, because we're new, it was like, well, this is how we differentiate ourselves. And we're looking for differentiated flavors.
0: Hmm.
1: We're not looking for the cheapest commodity input. We're looking for something that brings extra stuff to the table, which then we believe or we know provides a, uh, you know, a a much richer and different whiskey experience.
0: Now for you, which came first, your interest in whiskey
1: or your interest in heritage grains? Uh, Definitely my interest in whiskey. That's been going on for me since I was like 16. I grew up in Canada, so it's not so a little more liberal than the United States and, and liquor laws, but like, yes. I enjoyed American whiskeys when I was a lot younger. And whiskey is really where, you know, I in the out world is where I uh, fall. In fact, I would say if to where we are today making it, if you don't love what you make, you shouldn't make it. Yeah. Whether that's vodka or anything else. Whiskey, I think it's the most evolved spirit. So to me, it became something of a, well, I want to do it. So there's a lot of things to start out with when you are, are looking at at making the whiskey and, and there's ways to do that right and, and to stay true to your techniques and to use traditional styles. And then following that, it was like, well, we wanted to be more local mm-hmm. to start. Cause I believe whiskey space in general is very in the United States is going to develop a lot. Like it, it is in Scotland where you have space side islands, highlands, lowlands, where there's distinctive styles that come from there. So I think uh, the United States is moving for that, mostly driven by, the, by the, um, the craft industry. So when it came down to uh, us looking for a differentiated flavors, and then also we wanted to be local, and we were looking at things like, well, hey, let's make, let's make it from grains and all the inputs that come from you know, a radius around us. And then we, we tried at the beginning, and no one would sell us grain. This is before the whiskey movement had kind of blown up here. And started to, you know, be everywhere and anywhere. And, and like literally there weren't small craft industries that supply industries like us yet. So we had to fight our way through that. And our first step was to find, um, almost by chance on a weekend where we ran out of a, you know, wheat malt that we had used a small amount in our four grain recipe. And I needed to go get that because, you know, this is the weekend on I can work on the weekend. I got a job the rest of the, the week. And, so we went to a homebrew store, if you can believe that,
0: right? and
1: found wheat malt that, wow, this is really interesting. It's like, why? What is this? And the guy's, oh, this is a locally produced, grown, and then malted wheat. And it's in a malt farm here. And, you know, it's not a nondescript bag with a stamp on it. Right? Okay, I'm going to try that. Nah. And that led me very quickly into, wow, this is so much different. It just lit the whole distillery up in far as aromas and smells. That was just like 25 pounds in a, like a 900-pound recipe. And we're like, this is where we have to go immediately. And quick call to that producer, and do you have rye? Do you have barley? Do you have corn? And they didn't have corn, but they had all the rest of those things in both raw and in malted uh, in, in varieties. So when they malted it all on the farm, and so they're doing it in very small batches, they yeah. were doing it almost to order. So that meant it was super, super fresh. And you're going to find, I think in the future, you're going to hear more and more about fresh malts and fresh grains in the, the process of making whiskey and what that does. It brings up huge amounts of aromatics that will die off, you know, sitting in the silo for, you know, eight, 10, 24 months sometimes. So to us, it was like, hey, this was the revolution. This is what we wanted to do from the beginning. And we spent, we're able to do that with um, all the small grains, all the flavor grains. And it only took about, like two years after that to where you know corn was available in that in that way so the whiskey sister supply or, or two sisters that i met uh, at an event and they're like well, why don't you buy our corn i'm like well i don't i don't know no one would sell me corn so i'm buying it from you know this place in the midwest and i'm like oh no we have corn we can do this for you and this for you and we're in, we're in burlington we're three hours away We're like mike sold bring it yeah we made i don't know 20 barrels worth of it let it go for like a year and a half before we uh we totally committed to it and it was better again better because it was cleaner better because it was fresher and again it it doesn't bring a ton of flavor i would say that's my opinion some people would disagree with me i I think just bring starch definitely bring starch to the to the the table and then the freshness of that uh, makes a difference so then we were you know rolling with uh, 100% Colorado grown grain, we're using heirloom varietals of grains. And yeah. you know, we're using El Dorado mineral water out of the ground from another part of tower, Colorado to cut it to, to barrel string. But all these things matter. It started with varietal. And then after varietal, it, it, there's more to it. And this is not like because I knew this, this is because I learned this. And having great partners from uh, from the farms allowed us to grow with them and in their knowledge and what they brought to the table. And they continue to try to raise the bar on themselves. And so we end up with, well, it isn't just the varietal, it's the soil that it's grown in. It's the location. It's true. terroir, And, you know, there's nothing else that tastes like our rye. Mm. This is the rye that's, you know, SLD, Salud East Valley rye is only growing that palate. And for, you know, Developed in that valley 100 years, 7,500 years ago, and it brings to bear a lot of flavors that come out of the ground. So you think, oh, that's dirt. No, no, no. This is like these earthy kind of notes, though. And instead of like cracked pepper, you know, pepperiness in most rye, it's got this cool vegetative serrano-like Midwest kind of peppery notes. Holy things matter to us, and they've mattered more and more as we've, as we've grown up here over the last 12 years, and and we continue to uh, address these things and look at you know year-to-year variances and take wet tests on the grain and see, what's, oh, it's higher in protein this year. What is that going to mean to flavor? All these things are very interesting to us, and we have great partners that work with us on this.
0: Now, it seems as if you came across your growers almost accidentally, but are you working with them now to explore different grains, or are you just working with the heritage grains they were already planting apparently
1: most on the barley side okay so and then we used some scottish grain it was more it was like it was i think it was more six row and you know they planted part of the field now we took all that a whiskey with it different malting techniques on the rye side for the rye malt Mm. because we make 100% rye so Anything that we can bury there. And, and again, year to year, there are differences. But we definitely work with them on, on this, on malts that we want to have modified. So what that means to the average person, probably nothing. But what it means is that you can buy all kinds of different barley malt, right? Like chocolate malt, Abbey, like all these things that, that they're slightly modified in their roasting. And you can get different flavors out of It's very important for beer because those flavors will will be there in the beer in the end whereas when you're distilling it some of the stuff doesn't carry through the distillation others do and and often they change so to work with them on you know we use a caramel 60 malt sometimes in barley mm-hmm. and their caramel 60 probably more like caramel 120 if you looked at you know competitive set one but they customize made it for us so like well we or this we or this and they can they can tweak that and they will and again we're not out uh, 20 tons of something every time they make something, right? Mm. So they're small enough to be adaptable to small breweries who care about this and to uh, small surveys like ourselves that definitely care about this. So working with them on on both you know varietal selection and and then again, modification of of malts or combinations is is really fun. And then they're very smart at it and they 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 look at everything very closely. They're, they're doing a, s- a study on fresh malt with Colorado State University right now, which should come up this summer.
0: Now, for somebody who is maybe just getting into their whiskies and has never experienced a heritage grain whiskey before, hmm. how will they find the flavor difference?
1: Well, I think if you're starting out making it, you should make both and then see the difference. It'll show up immediately in the clear spirit before it goes into the into the barrel and then just you know run five or six barrels, test barrels of each, and then and, and see how it develops. Um, our wheat wow. varietal we use is a centennial white wheat. So it's a spring wheat. It's grown, or it developed for Colorado, centennial state, and it, it provides some of the most interesting parts of all our whiskey. So in our wheat, whiskey is 100%. So it has these huge orange notes that are unmistakable. Um, a lot of cool flower, honey flower, honeysuckle, kind of, this is crazy. It's bare at the beginning and, and the, the wood the barrels definitely accentuated. to a point with after six, seven years, it it tastes like a cocktail already. So like they'll share. See, but in order to do that, you gotta you gotta kind of wade into it. We keep, you know, we've been a 60, 20, 10, 10, four-grain recipe with, you know, 60% corn, 20% wheat, 10 barley, 10 malt. For quite a while, we still make other things that tweak that and try to see what will you know, what would take over. At the beginning, we had the rye is so strong it takes over even at ten percent. Wow. So we had to make you know production adjustments to denature it a little bit so it did so we didn't have it take over the wheat and the you know the nice oranges and doughiness, and cinnamon bun if you will, things that come from the wheat and and then the nuttiness that comes from from the from the body we don't want that to, to, that to take it over. So we made some adjustments there.
0: Yeah, but we
1: keep trying to like, well, what what's the right combination? We like what we make, but we always want to tweak something. And but again, not everything, just one thing, and see what we end up, see what it ends up being. And again, year to year, we have differences in those those major grains are all like they're very different every year. Rye in particular can just be wildly different depending if it was too wet in the spring it could be super large in size have too much protein which means we have to change the processes in order to take down some of that but the flavors are there and the flavors the so we talked about you know terroir and you know varietal but there's also something that the ttb isn't recognized really yet is like vintage so what year was made and that they don't allow you to put that on the label but it's there So we don't cross-marry grain, in our single-grain whiskeys. So then we have that, we have that little bit of extra Provence that uh, we can talk to. It means something to us. Do
0: you distill it in a different way, a heritage grain, from a non-heritage grain?
1: We have not. We still stick to, especially on, on Nash, we stick to a very specific grist of the grain. So that, you know, there's a certain amount of flour in it, there's a certain amount of like this X size and Y size, and you get the most out of the actual kernel. And then we have, and we continue to, it's not as important as it was in the beginning for us. We found that we can do this without being so specific, but we used to use an inverted stepped infusion mash, which is the inverse for beer, where you would start cold and then add certain grains and bring it up. So here we will want it to, Basically, add the grains to the cook at the point where they would liquefy properly, gelatinize properly, and and basically maximize their flavor. And so, the main thing I've already described is that the rye was taking over. So, we had to move that up and cook it with the corn at a higher temp. And then the rest, we still added those 153 and then 148. Like we add these things to the temperatures to maximize those, those flavors. We don't want to get rid of them. We want to accentuate them and bring them forward and temperatures matter the most.
0: The other thing that we should mention is that you and bond. Yes. For anyone who doesn't understand that term, do you want to describe what it means?
1: Yeah. So we, from the beginning, I'm a whiskey geek, so bottle and bond has meant a lot to me because it means something in the process and it means you've taken a certain amount of care and it also means that you actually made the whiskey which in the world we're in with so much of its source, uh, we wanted to plant that flag and say, we made this. We're following all the, the strictest standards for whiskey making in the world. And those standards stem from the Bottle and Bond Act of 1897 here in the United States. And the funny part of this is um, that was the very first consumer production law in American history. <laughs> they went up to the whiskey first.
0: <laughs> I didn't
1: know it was the food that's interesting. Yeah. Okay. So and it was because during that time federal government tax revenues were half based on whiskey. So that was where they're getting the revenue. So then there was unsavory types making or taking clear, I don't even know, in bad spirit and then putting prune juice and, you know, tobacco spit and everything in it to color it and then sell it. So the consumer was getting they didn't know what they were getting. So the Bottle and Bond Act brought in a standard that said hey if it's bottled and bond it means it was in a federally um, regulated um, house and it followed a whole bunch of standards so that all these you know unsavory things wouldn't happen to it so the whiskey today but the bottle of bond act doesn't really exist as something they enforce today but it still exists on the books and it's used by enough companies and it's increasingly being brought back again i think some of this nostalgia but it's also because i think that the craft movement has looked at this and said well this is a way to say and show that we're following these standards. And this sta- these standards are basically you have to make the, the whiskey within a six-month period. And those two periods are January to June or July, December. All the whiskey that goes into that batch, and I think this is a batch thing, more than a single barrel. Some people do single barrel. Bond should be a batch. So all the whiskey has to come from those six months. When you're small like us, that's tough yeah you're not making it every day you're making you know a month and a half of bourbon then you're making rye and so what you have to pick from is different so you have to be pretty dialed in on what you make to make sure you have a uniform consistency and yeah Yeah. the what goes in the barrel matters in kentucky they used to talk about seasons or how many years it's, its age essentially is in how many summer seasons it saw so the stuff in the june ending six months Goes into a period of much warmer temperatures and they get different things out of the barrel at the beginning than something that went in um, the December ending quarter. Right. So, season matters the most. It has to be made by a single distillery during that period. It has to follow all the straight whiskey standards and go into new Charred Oak and come off the still below 160 and be in the barrel below 120. All those things still apply. Yeah. And then it has to sit in a bonded federal warehouse, which if you're making this, you have one of those. Back then, they had a revenue guy with a gun and keys to the place, and so you couldn't get anything out of there because it was protected. Today, it's you're definitely, well, you can be audited, so you better follow all the rules. And then it has to sit in that warehouse for four years minimum.
0: Yeah.
1: Our stuff we started for now, we like the seven to eight the best. Some people like our six stuff, whatever. but we make most of the stuff in that seven to eight range. Right. And then, has to be put into glass or bottled at a hundred proof. So those are the rules that go around. And I think the, the hardest part is, you know, it has to be made by single distillery. Mm. And then you know, even in Kentucky when you have many, many different federally bonded rickhouses, houses, it becomes difficult because all your rick houses have different DSPs. So it's it's even harder for a company, I think, unless they know exactly where it's coming from because the, the warehouses matter as well and the, the, the DSP on them. It. So it's, it's, you know, it's not easy, especially when you're small, you don't have a lot of barrels to pick from and you're you trying to create this. So we're big behind it, again, because we've got to plant the flag and we believe it says something about what, what we do and how we make something.
0: I'm curious as to how in this day and age, especially, um, as you said, it's, you said not, said it's for- not enforced in all how easy is is it to get your warehouses bonded?
1: Well, we have areas within the warehouse. If we move the barrels across a, you know, doesn't even have to be painted, a line, we technically need to pay tax on it again. So it needs to stay.
0: So it can be within your warehouse. It doesn't need to be the whole warehouse.
1: Well, you have to d- identify the bonded area in your warehouse to get your, your DSP uh, distilling permit. Right. And, and to extent you, exp- you expanded a few years ago, and we have another... A warehouse about 15 miles away, and we had to spend quite a bit of time for them to approve it under the same DSP. So typically they want it within eight miles or something like that, but we like showed, but this is all the same thing. It's it's just the way the roads were, and you know. Uh, but you, ha- it's not. It's not like they just go sign that and let you do. Yeah. You got to, you know. We wrote 10 pages describing, you know, <laughs> traffic patterns and weather patterns and things that change like yeah it's it seems like it but if they're keeping they're trying to keep to a standard and yeah that's why American whiskeys Scottish whiskeys are I think better because there are standards. When there aren't standards then you don't know what you got and it doesn't protect the consumer. Mm.
0: No understandable tell us a little bit about your new releases.
1: Sure so we have a few things coming out of our seasonal releases so we have a bonded seven-year-old wheat whiskey a bonded san luis valley seven-year-old rye whiskey and our bourbon which will be the first one our four grain bourbon this year we like the seven-year-old barrels better than the eight so we're going to try something different and we're going to lighten it up a little bit when we look at stuff we try to look at what we have how many we're going to harvest and then what do we want the flavor profile to be this year? Last year on the bourbon, we wanted it kind of bigger and, and heavier. And mm. because we're in a mile high area and we're right against the Rocky Mountains, we have a lot of barometric pressure things. so We get a lot out of the wood right from the beginning. So our whiskeys, once they get above, you know, eight years old and stuff, start to be pretty heavy. Wow. So this year we want to go a little lighter yeah. and something that finishes with a little brighter... I'd call it like sour mashed corn finish, so that's what we went with. It will be out in about six weeks, I think. It's in the tank now. And then the rye whiskey this year, it's from a particular year, and the grains were a little different that year. Again, pretty light-bodied. I think it has a little more mint to it than normal. That one, we'd like seven. I don't think we'll move it from seven. We have some 10-year that we've put out in it. it's big too. And I think, uh, I think we found something you know kind of a sweet spot for how our ride develops. And then the wheat comes like a little bit later. It's usually we want to release it near the summer. We find that the wheat whiskey is a great summer whiskey because it tastes the best on ice. And I don't typically use ice in my whiskey. I will splash everything with some water, but the cold and then, the melting of the ice with the wheat whiskey tames its – it's got a little cool, like, fire to it, like, summer fire, like, right. hot winds. And, and the orange comes out, and you drop a little splash of cherry juice in it, or just the cherry, and you got yourself a cocktail. And and then the, the floor oats in it, it just – it's a, it's an amazing summer whiskey. So that's, that's the seasonal rollout for us. So the rye, it's great for – Every day. And it's mostly, you know, Rye's mostly drank in a cocktail. So we think wow. it does a great accompaniment to whatever you want to do in your cocktail, whether it's a Manhattan. Yeah. Like, or, or whether, you know, you want to make something a little bit more like a Boulevardier or something. We think that uh, it, it has its components for that. Yeah. Whereas bourbon, I would probably want to drink a but if I had to make a major cocktail out of it, it would definitely be a whiskey sour. So <laughs> that would be what I would make with it. But the egg.
0: Now, I imagine there is a fair amount of education that you need to give people, not just about bottle and bond, which we've talked about, but also these heritage grains and the sort of flavours that they can impart. Do you find that that's a lot of what you're doing?
1: Yeah. well, We have a little like bottle shop tasting room right now, and that will be replaced in the next few months with a a very – architecturally designed very cool brand experience if you will with some education center and a little bit more broader on the tour side in our tours that's what what we're trying to do is we're trying to describe uh well or how the company came about and what our our steps were but also to explain that Mm -hmm. what you're going through here is a flavor experience and that comes from something it comes from a particular place in colorado that grows grains and then transfers those grains and it comes in the form of grain, And then through process in again, at a mile high, aging at a mile high, all these things contribute to the ultimate flavors you're going to taste.
0: Right. And
1: so we take them through that. We typically want to start them with four grain, which is all cooked together in designing that whiskey. It was like, well, we have a sip of it. you want all four American mother grains in every sip. So bam, you want to taste the sweetness of the corn And you want to have like this penny metallic kind of bite, which is the rye. Mm. And then this, you know, doughy, baking spice, fruity, apple, orange kind of notes. And then this nutty, hazelnut, walnut kind of finish. And all those you get in every sip of the floor grain. So once you've done that, then we want to, to try single grain whiskeys so that you can go back and forth and say, wow, there it is. What you just said is there. I'm like, yeah, there is the rye bite. Right wow, there's the orange, it's on the, from the wheat. Yeah. And so taking people through that experience is, is fun to watch and see how people really you know, understand that you know these are real flavors. We're not just telling you, to, here's what the tasting notes are. We're, trying to, we're not even telling you what those notes might translate into some connection in your cortex. We're just saying these flavors exist. They come from the grain.
0: Right. And I believe that your tasting room is going to somewhat
1: resemble a church. It has a a huge Gothic arched window in it. Yeah. It has pews, which my, uh, my dad, my stepfather and I are building. So, uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's have this cool experience of going through whiskey church and you go through a tour, come back into a nice tasting area. We'll go through two or three samples and then a full cocktail bar on uh, the second floor, allowing for our mix all just to essentially take you through different experiences with it. Plus, selection of vintage whiskey that we made allowing you to go well what did you make back in 2016 like oh well here some of that it had held some back so that we have stuff that allows people to go you know what has changed we did a really interesting thing about a year ago for for some folks where we said okay well why don't you test a vertical of our four grain from batch one all the way through to batch like 27 and we go one seven thirteen twenty seven like here it is we we're a little nervous at first like, oh my god what if we didn't make it really nice at the beginning <laughs> and uh yeah. but it all turned out to turned out well like it was like hey they're all the, the key elements of what makes a law's bourbon or even a law's whiskey we have very distinctive signature notes orange pico black tea and and these fruity notes all are in every one of our every one of our our whiskeys right. which we believe that's you know we might be Somewhat attributed to use, but it's mostly attributed to where the grains come from and the ground they're growing. How do you want somebody to approach your liquids? My view of this is that most people who like American whiskey know what bourbon tastes like and they immediately assume everything should taste exactly like what comes from Kentucky, which is awesome. I drink that all the time as well. But bourbon can be made anywhere in America. And I really, like I said, getting believe in this regional contribution and and different techniques and using what's local. And so I think that the number one thing we try to get through people on on bourbon is this may not taste like Kentucky bourbon whiskey to you. And we like our our flagship in that kind of four year range because we want to keep the green and the fruity notes and we don't want it to be overpowered by the barrel. Some folks who like bourbon big wood tastes i personally am less excited about that i want to taste the grains we're about wow. the grains so we want to you know educate people on like this is what you take it, it is definitely tastes of bourbon but it's going to have like a drier finish yeah. it's not going to be as sweet right up front. that's because it's only got 60 percent corn but it's also light enough bodied where if you're not an expert or you deem yourself a neophyte. You're going to like it enough because it's very approachable. Sure. It's like Maker's Mark. Like Maker's Mark's most approachable bourbon there is. It's awesome. And people are like, oh, well, but it, like, hold on. It's, that's what it's supposed to be. It's a weeded bourbon. It's well-made. Like That's what ours is too. So it's easy to, to drink or really approachable at the front end. Yeah. And then at the back end, if you let it sit on your palate a longer, by the third sip, you start to get some of the complexity. Which you know, our goalposts for developing it was for Roses and Baker's Mark. Yeah. And so those things kind of like play together and you go, now you can sort of see these sort of things. And as you get into our bonded whiskeys, you're gonna get more, like way more barrel influence. So they become closer to what that space exp- expectations of Kentucky might be. But like we make it different. Everything we make is not a pot still, double pot distilled. We're not making it on a column still. Yeah. And column still's a great whiskey. We're, we like the pot still because it concentrates, you know, we're about flavor. It concentrates so us flavors someone. It's very Irish, aren't you? <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, yeah, that's some of it's where it comes from. Pot still, Irish whiskey is way better than a coffee still or a column still. Like, yeah. way better. Absolutely. Red breast, yeah. way better.
0: Well, if people want more information about Laws, they can, of course, go to the website, which is lawswhiskeyhouse.com. Or connect with the brand via your socials.
1: Yes, I'm not a social media person, but we do a very good job with social. <laughs> I've been told. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, the, there's definitely a lot of information you can get a vibe for what our culture is, and and then come visit us. Like we have we have an experience right now that people go, oh, it's kind of like a little hole in the wall kind of thing. Yeah, it is, but you're going to get so much more out of it in the tour and the information is that we're very educated forward. And then we're only a few months away from having a pretty grand experience in a brutalist-designed building, like very cool education center. So,
0: anyway, Ellen, thank you so much for your time.
1: Well, thank you, Chuck. This has been great. I appreciate the questions and the interest, and uh, especially the interest in the heirloom variety grains and and flavors.
0: And we'd also like to thank you for listening. Be sure to visit cocktailsdistill.com to, to access the show notes. And if you like what you've heard, we'd love you to subscribe, rate, or give a review on iTunes. Until next time, cheers.